0: Welcome everyone to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back everyone to Memories and Adventures by Arthur Conan Doyle. This is Chapter 8, titled My First Literary Success. We have skipped Chapters 5, through seven, because they mostly deal with his early experience as a doctor, and I found that part of the story to be a bit slow. This chapter and the following chapters I think you'll enjoy very much. Now, Chapter 8, My First Literary Success. During the years before my marriage, I had from time to time written short stories which were good enough to be marketable at very small prices, four pounds on an average, but not good enough to reproduce. They are scattered about amid the pages of London Society... "'all the year round, Temple Bar, the boys' own paper, and other journals. "'There let them lie. "'They served their purpose in relieving me a little of that financial burden "'which always pressed upon me. "'I could hardly have earned more than ten pounds or fifteen pounds a year "'from this source, so that the idea of making a living by it never occurred to me. "'But though I was not putting out, I was taking in. "'I still have notebooks full of all sorts of knowledge which I acquired during that time.' "'It is a great mistake to start putting out cargo "'when you have hardly stowed any on board. "'My own slow methods and natural limitations "'made me escape this danger. "'After my marriage, however, "'my brain seems to have quickened, "'and both my imagination and my range of expression "'were greatly improved. "'Most of the short stories which appeared eventually "'in My Captain of the Polestar "'were written in those years from 1885 to 1890. "'Some of them are perhaps as good honest work "'as any that I've ever done.' What gave me great pleasure, and for the first time made me realize that I was ceasing to be a hack writer and was getting into good company, was when James Payne accepted my short story, Habakkuk Jepson's Statement, for Cornhill. I had a reference for this splendid magazine, with its traditions from Thackeray to Stevenson, and the thought that I had won my way into it pleased me even more than the check for thirty pounds, which came duly to hand. It was, of course, anonymous. Such was the law of the magazine— which protects the author from abuse, as well as prevents his winning fame. One paper began its review by the phrase, "'Cornhill opens its new number with a story which would have made Thackeray turn in his grave. "'A dear old gentleman who knew me hurried across the road to show me the paper with these cheering words. "'Another, more gracious, said, "'Cornhill begins the new year with an exceedingly powerful story, "'in which we seem to trace the hand of the author of The New Arabian Nights.' It was great praise, but something less warm, which came straight to my own address, would have pleased me better. I soon had two other stories in the Cornhill, John Huxford's Hiatus, and The Ring of Thoth. I also penetrated the stout Scottish barrier of Blackwood with the story The Physiologist's Wife," which was written when I was under the influence of Henry James, but I was still in the days of very small things so small that when a paper sent me a woodcut and offered me four guineas if I would write a story to correspond, I was not too proud to accept. It was a very bad woodcut, and I think that the story corresponded all right. I remember writing a New Zealand story, though why I should have written about a place of which I knew nothing, I cannot imagine. Some New Zealand critic pointed out that I had given the exact bearings of the farm mentioned as ninety miles to the east or west of the town of Nelson, and that in that case it was situated... 20 miles out to the floor of the Pacific Ocean. These little things will happen. There are times when accuracy is necessary, and others where the idea is everything, and the place quite immaterial. We'll return with my first literary success right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. It was about a year after my marriage that I realized that I could go on doing short stories forever and never make headway. What is necessary is that your name should be on the back of a volume. Only so do you assert your individuality and get the full credit or discredit of your achievement. I had for some time from 1884 onwards been engaged upon a sensational book of adventure, which I had called The Firm of Girdlestone, which represented my first attempt at a connected narrative. Save for occasional patches, it is a worthless book, and, like the first book of everyone else, unless he's a great original genius, it was too reminiscent of the work of others. I could see it then, and could see it even more clearly later. When I sent to publishers and they scorned it, I quite acquiesced in their decision, and finally let it settle, after its periodical flights to town. "'a disheveled mass of manuscript at the back of a drawer. "'I felt now that I was capable of something fresher and crisper "'and more workmanlike. "'Gaborio had rather attracted me by the most dovetailing of his plots, "'and Poe's masterful detective, M. Dupin, "'had from boyhood been one of my heroes. "'But could I bring an edition of my own? "'I thought of my old teacher, Joe Bell, "'of his eagle face, of his curious ways, "'of his eerie trick of spotting details.' If he were a detective, he would surely reduce this fascinating but unorganized business to something nearer to an exact science. I would try if I could get this effect. It was surely possible in real life, so why should I not make it plausible in fiction? It is all very well to say that a man is clever, but the reader wants to see examples of it, such examples as Bell gave us every day in the wards. The idea amused me. What should I call the fellow?' "'I still possessed a leaf of a notebook "'with various alternative names. "'One rebelled against the elementary art "'which gives some inkling of character in the name "'and creates Mr. Sharps or Mr. Ferrets. First, it was Sheringford Holmes, "'then it was Sherlock Holmes. "'He could not tell his own exploits, "'so he must have a commonplace comrade as a foil, "'an educated man of action "'who could both join in the exploits "'and narrate them. "'A drab, quiet name for this unaustacious man.' Watson would do. And so I had my puppets and wrote, My Study in Scarlet. I knew that the book was as good as I could make it, and I had high hopes. When Girdlestone used to come circling back with the precision of a homing pigeon, I was grieved but not surprised, for I acquiesced in the decision. But when my little Holmes book began also to do the circular tour, I was hurt, for I knew that it deserved a better fate. James Payne applauded, but found it both too short and too long, which was true enough. Aerosmith received it in May, 1886, and returned it unread in July. Two or three others sniffed and turned away. Finally, as Ward, Locke, and Company made a specialty of cheap and often sensational literature, I sent it to them. "'Dear Sir,' they said, "'we have read your story and are pleased with it. We could not publish it this year as the market is flooded at present with cheap fiction.' But if you do not object to its being held over till next year, we will give you twenty five pounds for the copyright. Yours faithfully, Ward, Locke, and Company, October thirtieth, eighteen eighty six. It was not a very tempting offer, and even I, poor as I was, hesitated to accept it. It was not merely the small sum offered, but it was the long delay, for this book might open a road for me. I was heartsick, however, at repeated disappointments and I felt that perhaps it was true wisdom to make sure of publicity, however late. Therefore I accepted, and the book became Beaton's xmas Annual of 1887. I never at any time received another penny for it. Having a long wait in front of me before this book could appear, and feeling large thoughts rise within me, I now determined to test my powers to the full, and I chose a historical novel for this end. "'because it seemed to me the one way of combining "'a certain amount of literary dignity "'with those scenes of action and adventure "'which were natural to my young and ardent mind. "'I had always felt great sympathy for the Puritans, "'who, after all, whatever their little peculiarities, "'did represent political liberty and earnestness in religion. "'They had usually been caricatured in fiction and art. "'Even Scott had not drawn them as they were. "'Macaulay, who was always one of my chief inspirations, "'had alone made them comprehensible.' "'the somber fighters, with their Bibles and their broadswords. "'There is a great passage of his, I cannot quote it verbally, "'in which he says that after the restoration, "'if ever you saw a carter more intelligent than his fellows, "'or a peasant who tilled his land better, "'you would be likely to find that it was an old pikeman of Cromwell's. "'This, then, was my inspiration in Micah Clark, "'where I fairly let myself go upon the broad highway of adventure. "'I was well up in history.' but I spent some months over details and then wrote the book very rapidly. There are bits of it, the picture of the Puritan household, and the sketch of Judge Jeffreys, which I have never bettered. When it was finished early in 1888, my hopes ran high, and out it went on its travels. But alas, although my Holmes booklet was out and had attracted some little favorable comment, the door still seemed to be barred. James Payne had first peeped, and he began his letter of rejection with the sentence, How can you, can you, waste your time and your wits writing historical novels? This was depressing after a year of work. Then came Bentley's verdict. It lacks, in our opinion, the one great necessary point for fiction, i.e., interest. And this being the case, we do not think it could ever become popular with libraries and the general public. Then Blackwood had its say. There are imperfections which would militate against success. The chances of the book proving a popular success do not seem to be strong enough to warrant us in publishing it. There were others even more depressing. I was on the point of putting the Warren manuscript into hospital with its mangled brother, Girdlestone, when as a last resource I sent it to Longmans, whose reader, Andrew Lang, liked it and advised its acceptance. It was to Andrew of the Brindled Hair, as Stevenson called him, "'that I owe my first real opening, and I have never forgotten it. "'The book duly appeared in February 1889, "'and though it was not a boom book, it had extraordinarily good reviews, "'including one special one all to itself by Mr. Prothero in the 19th century, "'and it has sold without intermission from that day to this. "'It was the first solid cornerstone laid for some sort of literary reputation.' British literature had a considerable vogue in the United States at this time for the simple reason that there was no copyright, and they had not to pay for it. It was hard on British authors, but far harder on American ones, since they were exposed to this devastating competition. Like all national sins, it brought its own punishment not only to American authors, who were guiltless, but to the publishers themselves, for what belongs to everyone belongs practically to no one, and they could not bring out a decent edition without being at once undersold. "'I have seen some of my early American editions "'which might have been printed on the paper "'that shopmen used for parcels. "'One good result, however, from my point of view, "'was that a British author, if he had anything in him, "'soon won recognition over there, "'and afterwards, when the Copyright Act was passed, "'he had his audience all ready for him. "'My Holmes book had met with some American success, "'and presently I learned that an agent of Lippincott's "'was in London and that he wished to see me "'to arrange for a book.' Needless to say, I gave my patients a rest for a day, and eagerly kept the appointment. Once only before had I touched the edge of literary society. That was when Cornhill was turned into a fully illustrated journal, an experiment which failed, for it was quickly abandoned. The change was celebrated by a dinner at the ship, at Greenwich, to which I was invited on the strength of my short contributions. All the authors and artists were there, and I remember the reverence with which I approached James Payne— "'who was to me the warden of the sacred gate. "'I was among the first arrivals "'and was greeted by Mr. Smith, "'the head of the firm, "'who introduced me to Payne. "'I loved much of his work "'and waited in awe for the first weighty remark "'which should fall from his lips. "'It was that there was a crack in the window "'and he wondered how the devil it had got there. "'Let me add, however, "'that my future experience "'was to show that there was no wittier "'or more delightful companion in the world. "'I sat next to Anstey that night, who had just made a most-deserved hit with his Vice Versa, and I was introduced to other celebrities, so that I came back walking on air. Now, for the second time I was in London on literary business, Stoddart, the American, proved to be an excellent fellow, and had two others to dinner. They were Gill, a very entertaining Irish MP, and Oscar Wilde, who was already famous as the champion of aestheticism. It was indeed a golden evening for me. Wild, to my surprise, had read Micah Clark, and was enthusiastic about it, so that I did not feel a complete outsider. His conversation left an indelible impression upon my mind. He towered above us all, and yet had the art of seeming to be interested in all that we could say. He had delicacy of feeling and tact, for the monologue man, however clever, can never be a gentleman at heart. He took as well as gave, but what he gave was unique. He had a curious precision of statement, a delicate flavor of humor, and a trick of small gestures to illustrate his meaning, which were peculiar to himself. The effect cannot be reproduced, but I remember how in discussing the wars of the future he said, "'A chemist on each side will approach the frontier with a bottle,' his upraised hand and precise face conjuring up a vivid and grotesque picture. His anecdotes, too, were happy and curious.' "'We were discussing the cynical maxim "'that the good fortune of our friends "'made us discontented. "'The devil,' said Wilde, "'was once crossing the Libyan desert, "'and he came upon a spot "'where a number of small fiends "'were tormenting a holy hermit. "'The sainted man easily shook off "'their evil suggestions. "'The devil watched their failure, "'and then he stepped forward "'to give them a lesson. "'What you do is too crude,' said he. "'Permit me for one moment.' "'With that he whispered to the holy man.' "'Your brother has just been made Bishop of Alexandria.' "'A scowl of malignant jealousy "'at once clouded the serene face of the hermit. "'That,' said the devil to his imps, "'is the sort of thing which I should recommend.' "'The result of the evening was that both Wilde and I "'promised to write books for Lippincott's magazine. "'Wilde's contribution was "'The Picture of Dorian Gray, "'a book which is surely upon a high moral plane, "'while I wrote "'The Sign of the Four. "'in which Holmes made his second appearance. "'I should add that never in Wilde's conversation "'did I observe one trace of coarseness of thought, "'nor could one at that time associate him with such an idea. "'Only once again did I see him, many years afterwards, "'and then he gave me the impression of being mad. "'He asked me, I remember, "'if I had seen some play of his which was running. "'I answered that I had not. "'He said, "'Ah, you must go. "'It is wonderful. "'It is genius.' All this with the gravest face. Nothing could have been more different from his early gentlemanly instincts. I thought at the time, and still think, that the monstrous development which ruined him was pathological, and that a hospital, rather than a police court, was the place for its consideration. When his little book came out, I wrote to say what I thought of it. His letter is worth reproducing, as showing the true wild. I omit the early part in which he comments on my own work in two generous terms. "'Between me and life, there's a mist of words, always. "'I throw probability out of the window for the sake of a phrase, "'and the chance of an epigram makes me desert truth. "'Still I do aim at making a work of art, "'and I am really delighted that you think my treatment subtle and artistically good. "'The newspapers seemed to me to be written by the Purient for the Philistine. "'I cannot understand how they can treat Dorian Gray as immoral.' "'My difficulty was to keep the inherent moral subordinate "'to the artistic and dramatic effect, "'and it still seems to me that the moral is too obvious. "'Encouraged by the kind reception which Micah Clark had received from the critics, "'I now determined upon an even bolder and more ambitious flight. "'It seemed to me that the days of Edward III "'constituted the greatest epoch in English history, "'an epoch when both the French and the Scottish kings "'were prisoners in London.' THE RESULT HAD BEEN BROUGHT ABOUT MAINLY BY THE POWERS OF A BODY OF MEN WHO WERE RENOWNED THROUGH EUROPE, BUT WHO HAD NEVER BEEN DRAWN IN BRITISH LITERATURE, FOR THOUGH SCOTT TREATED IN HIS INIMITABLE WAY THE ENGLISH ARCHER, IT WAS AS AN OUTLAW, RATHER THAN AS A SOLDIER, THAT HE DREW HIM. I HAD SOME VIEWS OF MY OWN, TOO, ABOUT THE MIDDLE AGES, WHICH I WAS ANXIOUS TO SET FORTH. I WAS FAMILIAR WITH Froissart AND Chaucer, AND I WAS AWARE THAT THE FAMOUS KNIGHTS OF OLD WERE BY NO MEANS THE ATHLETIC HEROES OF SCOTT, BUT WERE often OF A VERY DIFFERENT TYPE. "'Hence came my two books, The White Company, written in 1889, "'and Sir Nigel, written fourteen years later. "'Of the two I consider the latter, Sir Nigel, the better book, "'but I have no hesitation in saying that the two of them, taken together, "'did thoroughly achieve my purpose, "'that they made an accurate picture of that great age, "'and that as a single piece of work they formed the most complete, "'satisfying, and ambitious thing that I have ever done. "'All things find their level.' "'but I believe that if I had never touched Holmes, "'who has tended to obscure my higher work, "'my position in literature would at the present moment "'be a more commanding one. "'The work needed much research, "'and I have still got my notebooks full of all sorts of lore. "'I cultivate a simple style "'and avoid long words so far as possible. "'And it may be that this surface of ease "'has sometimes caused the reader to underrate "'the amount of real research "'which lies in all my historical novels. "'It is not a matter which troubles me, however.' for I have always felt that justice is done in the end, and that the real merit of any work is never permanently lost. I remember that as I wrote the last words of the White Company, I felt a wave of exultation, and with a cry of, That's done it! I hurled my inky pen across the room, where it left a black smudge upon the duck's egg wallpaper. I knew in my heart that that book would live, and that it would illuminate our national traditions. Now that it has passed through fifty editions, "'I suppose I may say with all modesty "'that my forecast has proved to be correct. "'This was the last book which I wrote "'in my days of doctoring at South Sea "'and marks an epoch in my life, "'so I can now hark back to some other phases "'of my last years at Bush Villa "'before I broke away into a new existence. "'I will only add that "'The White Company was accepted by Cornhill "'in spite of James Payne's opinion of historical novels, "'and that I fulfilled another ambition "'by having a serial in that famous magazine.' A new phase of medical experience came to me about this time, for I suddenly found myself a unit in the British Army. The operations in the East had drained the medical service, and it had therefore been determined that local civilian doctors should be enrolled for temporary duty of some hours a day. The terms were Guinea-A-Day, and a number of us were tempted to volunteer where there were only a few vacancies. When I was called before the Board of Selection, a savage-looking old Army doctor who presided barked out, "And you, sir!' WHAT ARE YOU PREPARED TO DO? TO WHICH I ANSWERED, ANYTHING. IT SEEMS THAT THE OTHERS HAD ALL BEEN MAKING BARGAINS AND RESERVATIONS, SO MY WHOLE-HEARTED REPLY WON THE JOB. IT BROUGHT ME INTO CLOSER CONTACT WITH THE SAVAGE-LOOKING MEDICO, WHO PROVED TO BE Sir ANTHONY HOME, V.C., AN HONOR WHICH HE HAD WON IN THE INDIAN MUTINY. HE WAS IN SUPREME CHARGE, AND AS HE WAS AS FIERCE IN SPEECH AND IN ACT AS IN APPEARANCE, EVERYONE WAS TERRIFIED OF HIM. On one occasion I had told the orderly to draw a man's tooth, knowing that he was a very much more skillful dentist than I. I was on my way home when I was overtaken by an excited soldier who told me that Sergeant Jones was being court-martialed and would certainly lose his stripes, because he had done a minor operation. I hurried back, and on entering the room found Sir Anthony glaring at the unhappy man, while several other orderlies stood round awaiting their own turn. "'Sir Anthony's glare was transferred to me "'when I said that whatever the sergeant had done "'was by my express order. "'He grunted, banged the book he was holding, "'and broke up the meeting. "'He seemed a most disagreeable old man, "'and yet when I was married shortly afterwards "'he sent me a most charming message "'wishing me good fortune. "'Up to then I had never had anything from him "'save a scowl from his thick eyebrows, "'so I was most agreeably surprised. "'Soon afterwards the pressure ceased "'and we civilians We're all dismissed. In two weeks, we'll bring Chapter 9, Pulling Up the Anchor, in which he discusses psychic studies, experiments in telepathy, his first seance, his journey to Berlin, literary society, political work, Arthur Balvor, and his departure. We always appreciate reviews, and here's a few recent reviews for you. The first one, Good. I liked listening to this a lot, and the Good via Apple Podcast, Great Britain and just wonderful, five stars. Thank you so much, John, for this podcast. I started listening to your other podcasts to sleep, and now I'm immensely enjoying stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, ones I've never heard. We'll return with 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Until then, everyone. I'm going to recommend that if you haven't tried it yet, tune in to 1001 Stories for the Road where we're currently doing Canadian author Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Avonlea. A story I think you'll enjoy very much. Give it a try. It's 1001 Stories for the Road. Until next Sunday night, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.